Welcome to the Discovering Our Scars podcast, where we share personal experiences so we can learn from each other. I'm Steph. And I'm Beth. I've been in recovery for 16 years and am the author of Discovering My Scars, my memoir about what's done in the darkness eventually comes to light. I'm a lawyer turned pastor who's all about self-awareness and emotional health because I know what it's like to have neither of those things. Beth and I have been friends for years, have gone through a recovery program together, and when I wanted to start a podcast, she was the only name that came to mind as co-host. I didn't hesitate to say yes because I've learned a lot from sharing personal experiences with Steph over the years. We value honest conversations and we hope you do too. On today's show, we're going to have an honest conversation titled Discovering My Scars, Chapter 2. Then we'll share a slice of life and the show will close with questions for reflection. We'll invite you to reflect on the conversation in your own life. Okay, so chapter two, which means there was a chapter one. Right. So chapter one was two episodes ago. Yes. So we have started a series that will be broken up by other episodes, but we are going through my book, Discovering My Scars, and we're going chapter by chapter. And we're going to play the audio recording from the audiobook. And then we will talk about it and kind of discuss some some more kind of background information. And there you go. So today we're doing chapter two. Yep. And I'm excited about this chapter because we're going to meet somebody who we've had as a guest on the podcast. Oh, so I think that'll be good. Cool. Well, we can definitely reference that. Very cool. Chapter two, high school. Where do you begin when you have a lifetime of memories that precede an event? My childhood was filled with two present parents, a brother, and a nice group of friends. We lived in a quiet neighborhood with a big backyard where my brother and I would frequently dig big holes because why not? I had a best friend right across the street who I hung out with daily, jumping on her trampoline, playing in her tree fort, or making pretend music in our band with instruments we made out of cardboard. Most of life was fun, but school was a challenge. In first grade, my dad and my school diagnosed me with dyslexia, a learning disability. This meant I had to work harder than my friends to learn. I adapted, though, and didn't let it hold me back. Although I can't remember a lot of my childhood, life seemed pretty good most of the time as an elementary-aged girl. Okay, so I want to stop you there. First of all, I want to say that your opening sentence in this chapter, where do you begin when you have a lifetime of memories that precede an event? That's a great hook. Well done. Really like how you started this chapter. Um, Had you ever heard of dyslexia? I mean, I can't imagine as a first grader, you had any concept of what that was, except maybe that it was part of your dad's work. Okay, well, they actually never called it dyslexia when I was younger. So they didn't use the term dyslexia. They just said I had a learning disability. And so that's kind of what we used for, you know, most of my life. And then it wasn't until I got older that I learned that the term is dyslexia. I had heard it um, off and on through the years of like, you know, dyslexia is where you see things backwards. And so I never really thought of myself as having dyslexia. I just thought I had a learning disability. But in actuality, all learning disabilities in like reading and writing are dyslexia. And it's kind of a spectrum. Um, and I still can't tell you if I see things backwards, like the way that they describe dyslexia is seeing things backwards. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think dyslexia is as cut and dry as we try to explain it, like in the media and stuff. Yeah, right. Um, 
like I see word. Well, I don't know. I don't know how you see a word versus how I see a word. Right. So I can't tell you. It's like I have a friend that has uh, is color colorblind, not colorblind. We just can't see certain colors or certain yeah, colors messes a, up. Colorblind. colorblind. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so like we were building a Lego set together and he would ask like, is this gray? And I'd be like, no, that's green. <laughs> and <Right>. then <laughs> there was multiple steps where he'd go back because he put the wrong color in because he thought it was like orange, but it was red or something. Um, and so it's like, he doesn't know what orange looks like to me because right. he only knows what it looks like to him. So um, maybe I do see words backwards based on you, how you see them. But um, I just know I read slower. I, it takes me longer to comprehend things, to write things. That's all I know. Do you remember first grade? I mean, obviously you remember that that's when the, the learning disability was diagnosed. But like, do you remember school being hard or feeling like it was harder for you than other kids? My brother is very intelligent in the ways of school and all of that, like, very standard, smart kind of thing. And so I always had that bar to, like, compare myself to. Um, And I never got things as quick as him. I never, like, you know, and even, like, certain words, like, he would say or my friends would say, and I would have no idea what they meant um, because they just pick up on stuff so much quicker Um, But I do remember first grade, I don't, yeah, I didn't go into this, but in first grade, my teacher was pregnant. And so she was there at the beginning of the year and then she was there at the end of the year. And she, and then there was like a sub or something, I guess in the middle. And she realized I hadn't progressed from the beginning of the year. And it was very noticeable because, you know, she hadn't been with me in the middle. And that's how, that's how I was diagnosed was my teacher was like, told my mom was like, "Mm, maybe you should test her. But I do remember being tested um, a lot. So my dad tested me because he's a psychologist. and But the school wouldn't recognize his testing because of him being family. And so I had more testing done through the school and through like FSU. Like I had a bunch of testing done. I didn't really know. I mean, I was in first grade, so I didn't really know why I was doing it. I just knew I had to do it. And I can't remember. I think it was second grade. I actually had to do summer school because I was slower than everybody else. And you know, summer school usually is like a punishment because you didn't do well in the school year. But for me, like I did well, I did my best (laughs) and my best obviously wasn't good enough. I had to keep learning more. But um, my parents bought me a membership to Discovery Zone, which was like an indoor playground. I worked there. Yes. (laughs) And so, um, and Beth and I were best friends back then. She would like, you know. That would have been hilarious. Wouldn't that have been hilarious if we like remembered each other somehow? I mean, I worked there in 1990, oh, 1994, 95. That was probably when I went. Yeah, that's hilarious. Because I can't remember what year of school it was, but that was probably, I still have my card somewhere. Yeah. Um. But anyways, yeah, so they bought me that as like a way to show that it was not a punishment. And they explained to me and I never like felt like it was a punishment, but it was not cool that I had to go to summer school when I, you know, did my best. But then I got to go to Discovery Zone, which was fun. So it all worked out. Yeah. So Hannah was actually um, diagnosed with dyslexia at around the same age. Mm. Uh, It was actually second grade, but... In kindergarten, her kindergarten teacher told us, like, I've I've been at this for 50 years, and I just, in fact, the, she was retiring that oh, year. Wow. Like, she really okay. had, she really had dedicated her life to it. And she was like, and so they'll tell you they don't, they can't really officially diagnose this until she's a little bit older, but she's she's got a learning disability, and it's it's reading related, and it's, you know, but but she's amazing and wonderful, and, you know, 
smart and all that. It's just she's going to yeah. it's going to be harder for her to learn to read. And that proved to be true. Yeah. So it's interesting that um, it was just interesting to me to, to know that that happened for you in first grade because of my experience with Hannah. And then also, I just wondered what it felt like for you to be different from your classmates at such a young age, because I think that was formative for Hannah. Yeah. Watching it as her mom. You know, it really wasn't something that was like um, like a super like sore spot. Um, I think the school did a really good job at um, giving me the extra attention, but not like pointing it out. I do know that I think in third grade, they wanted me to put put me into a class that had all students that were struggling. And my mom really fought to have me in a, a typical classroom because um, she didn't think she, I would get the education I needed in that class. And that proved to be perfect and correct. And the class I ended up being in my teacher won teacher of the year that year, because she is an awesome teacher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, I would always be pulled out for like an hour or two a day to go to like a, an intense class where it was just like me and like two other people with one teacher that I would have more like reading and writing. And then after school and in the summer times, I, my parents hired a tutor that I would go to their house and they would teach me some more stuff. And then I, there were some computer programs here and there that I would do. So, you know, I always got extra attention. Um, my parents did a good job at like making sure, you know, I had what I needed. I personally think that like, as I get older, I feel like things are easier for me now, but I think it's because I've heard more words and I've like lived more life. So I've like experienced more words, but I don't necessarily comprehend more words. Like I'm not really learning them from books. I like hear them and I've seen words so much that I know how to spell them now mm -hmm. um, or which letters go in what order. Um, but I do think there's a point where like, I mean, I do think I still learn every day new things, but I don't think I learn in the ways that other people learn in reading and writing. I think there's like a, there's like only so far I can go. And I think life is easier now because I don't have to read and write as much as I did in school. For a grade. Which, you're yeah. not being graded on it. And so you're not constantly being evaluated on it. But I mean, you wrote a whole book. <laughs> yeah, it was hard. You know? <laughs> and you and I had a lot of editors helping me too. <laughs> yeah. But but also, and you've talked about this before. Uh, I don't remember if you talk about it in the book, but I know you've talked about it here on the podcast that the coping mechanisms that you learned you know and the fact that you had to work harder I mean you learned to work hard yeah and and you are willing to put in that work and it it paid off and I know we need to move on and get back to the recording but I uh, also want to say that you kind of describe your childhood here on the one hand as sort of idyllic right like you live in this quiet neighborhood you've got two present parents you've got a nice group of friends your brother is around you guys like to dig holes together You've got a friend just across the street that you're doing like cardboard band with. All of that sounds really good. But then you say that you don't remember a lot of your childhood. Do you think that you remember less of your childhood than like an average person? I have no idea. Yeah. Because I only know me. I know my brother remembers like everything. Mm. And he has a very good memory. Like he can remember things from when he was a baby. Mm. Like I can only remember certain things from childhood. A lot of things I remember is because there was video of them. Mm. And so I can see it. I don't know. Do you remember a lot from your childhood? I feel like I don't remember a lot, but I remember more than a lot of people. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if that makes sense. But like, my husband doesn't remember birthday parties. Mm. And like, there are pictures like I, yeah. I know that his parents threw him birthday parties, you know, or had family birthday parties at least every year. 
but he really doesn't remember any of that kind of stuff. So I just, you know, I don't know, just wondering something, what people really remember. Something weird that I remember so fondly, two things, which probably makes sense with what I do today. But in our first house in Tallahassee, in our garage, we had the best shelving. Mm. It came with the shelving on every wall had all the shelving and it was so amazing you could just put so much stuff up there and just like it was full of stuff and i still remember that and i still like one day want to do my garage like that it doesn't make the most sense because then you can't hang other stuff on it but i just and i don't know if i have any pictures of it but i just like and i don't know if it was as great as i remember but i just remember the storage was so nice and i was like that's how a garage should be and then i remember that we had a shed in the backyard and the shed was like the coolest thing because it was like a it was it, it wasn't scary i thought you were gonna say it was scary no well no it was cool it was unfinished so you could see the studs which mm. was cool so it was like the inside of a building you get to see how it's made i mean i do remember it kind of smelled and it was hot but um we didn't really use it for storage so my um my parents let me use it like as a fort mm. and like a like a hangout area and there wasn't lights like now i would have like totally as an adult i had been like we're gonna make this great bring you know we could have run electricity out there that would not have been hard i mean sure just like at least run a cable come on um but i remember those two things fondly because and i still want to have a um build a shed but i don't really have a place at this house but i want to have a shed one day bring back that childhood joy of the shed when I was in middle school and high school, life got harder. My parents took notice and, when I was 14, my dad gave me a test for depression. He had given me many psychological tests over the years. It was how he practiced his new children's test. I was his test subject. The tests were for intelligence, memory, attention, etc. But this was different. The depression test was not for practice. Dad gave it to me to see if I was damaged, to see if I was sick, like his patients. After Dad scored my test, he delivered the results in his work voice. Mom was sitting to his left. Have you ever had a doctor speak down to you? Maybe scold you for not exercising like you should? Maybe make you feel like they have a higher place in the world because they have doctor before their name? Well, all that and more is what my dad's work voice sounds like. It's very patronizing and even has a little chuckle in it as if to say, I know so much more than you. Every word that comes out of my mouth has so much more value than what you say. I might as well call him by his professional name, Dr. Lawrence, because there's no trace of my dad when he talks to me like this. Alas, the test results weren't good. They showed that I was deeply depressed. I had a mental illness. Then Dr. Lawrence proceeded to go through my answers to the fill-in-the-blank questions and told me the answers he felt were most troubling. Why did you write this? He asked me. What did you mean by this? He kept repeating. I don't know, I answered. I said that because I really didn't know. I had answered the questions quickly, as he had instructed, and didn't think a lot about them. Yet, now he wanted me to think why. At 14, I didn't know why. I didn't know what was causing me to be depressed, and I didn't understand my overwhelming emotions. This news upset my parents, so I tried to act happier around them. My emotions scared me. I didn't know how to handle them, so I shut them down. I did my best to ignore them and fill my time with other activities. I must have put on a really good show because, eventually, no one asked if I was depressed anymore. My parents let the depression results drain from their thoughts and didn't seek further treatment for me. 
This was the worst. Oh my gosh. I remember this test. Mm. I had had so many tests before and I remember taking this test and it was the worst. I mean, I w- and I was honest on the test because, mm. you know, I knew you're supposed to. I was very like trained on how to take psychological tests because I had been doing it from childhood for either for real testing or just for my dad to like learn how to administer a test because that's what he is. He is a his he's a psychologist, but that's all he does is administer tests, psychological tests, which I think people don't always like fully understand. Like that is solely his job. He doesn't sit on a you know you don't lay in a couch and tell him your problems. He just gives you a test. Um, and the scoring is crazy. Like the, mm. you, you have to have a PhD to know how to score these things because they make it complicated. Like he's shown it to me before and I'm just like, this is so unnecessary. And I made him actually a, um, I made him a, like an Excel spreadsheet that will like, will like calculate all of these weird numbers for him for like recently mm-hmm. um, because they're just stupid. <laughs> yeah. So you say, you say you were his test subject, but you know, a less generous description would be guinea pig. Did you yeah. feel like a guinea pig? Um, it wasn't horrible. It was just boring because it would take hours and hours because he's learning to do it. So he would like fumble and like have to figure out stuff. And like I said, like these psychological tests are like written by psychologists. And so they're overly complicated, unnecessarily complicated and so he would have to try to figure him out. Um, and so it would just, it would take hours. So it'd be boring, but um, I don't know. I was just kind of expected, but not in a, I don't remember like despising it so much. It just kind of was like, this is what we do in the family. Like yeah. we're supporting our dad. Okay. You were like so compliant. I can't, I mean, you know, other another kid might've been like, that is boring. I'm not doing it. I mean, maybe or- I can't remember complaining, but that also sounds like something I would have done is complain, but I don't know. It was just like, this is what you do. And like, that's kind of how DIY projects were mm-hmm. um, when I was growing up was, you know, we need these projects done. We don't have the money to pay somebody. So we're going to do them. And that was what me and my mom would do because my dad has no skills beyond psychology. And so <laughs> his words, and so I'll repeat them. So it was just like, this is what we do. This needs to be done. And so I guess that's how it was with the test too. So how did you know this wasn't a practice test? And do you think that it would have been different if it had, if you had thought of it as a practice test? I think I had taken so many tests over the years. I also kind of thought the results were interesting. That was also part of it was it was kind of interesting to see um, like where I ranked with like in different ways. I don't know for sure that I knew this wasn't a practice test. Like I think it might've been, kind of hushed tones, like, I'm going to give you this test, but it wasn't very clear that I'm testing you because you need to be tested. I think it may have been where I thought I was just doing, like, what I wrote, I don't think I knew at that time. Like, this I don't... Is, this is with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. This is, as you're looking back, you're like, oh, he gave me that test because he wanted to see if I was damaged. Yeah, and he um, he actually still has all of the test forms. Like, mm-hmm. when I was writing my book, I asked if he had them, and he's like, yeah, I can get the file out. So I've seen them. Like, I have seen, like, and that's where I learned, like, s- some of these things that I didn't realize. Like, I remember things, but then I was able to actually yeah. see the test. And that's where I, I didn't know I was tested at FSU for a learning disability, but that's where he had the test still from that. So I don't know. It was very much like, and also at 14, I don't understand what depression is really. And I don't understand the complexities of all of this. I have my nibblings now. We've been, I we've had them over the summer and we've been watching movies and there's like stuff that will happen in movies that I'm like, 
as an adult, I get what that is, but then I realize they don't get what that is yeah. and they won't get what that is until like they're older mm -hmm. and you know, just the complexities of that. And so for me, I like, I don't think I truly understood what, um, what this was. And, but like I said, I could tell that my parents kind of were acting upset at this news. So, you know, maybe I need to act differently. And so I could tell that, like, I think kids are in tune to like, their parents' emotions and can kind of tell, well, they're happier when I do this. So maybe if I do this, then they won't seem concerned. So it's almost like how kids learn to lie is by seeing how their parents react to the way that they are acting. So I wasn't, nothing was changing, but I knew that if I was like smiled more then they would seem less stressed. Mm -hmm. Didn't mean I wanted to smile more. I felt like smiling more, but that you, made them happier. Yeah, you wanted to have a, a, a different, um, you wanted to elicit a different reaction from them. And so you changed your outward presentation, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So your dad has read your book. Yeah. Does he, did he know that he had a work voice or was that news to him? I mean, we didn't comb through every single no, section. No, that's so fair. I, I, just, no, I, I mean, I guess I'm asking if he brought it up, if he was like, oh, my work voice, I didn't think about that. Um, he did not bring it up. But I do think if I brought up this section, like if I read it to him, I think how he would react would he would do the exact little chuckle and be like, ha, ha, ha. like, I think he would do the work voice yeah, <laughs> in a response to the work voice. And he would, I think that's what he would do. But um, yeah. yeah, I didn't comb through everything with him, but he read it and he's proud of the book. And he like was proud that I was able to like reflect on everything. Well, I remember when my, it used to be kind of a joke among moms when my kids, especially when my kids were smaller, everything would be going fine. And then, um, you know, I'd get on the phone and all of a sudden the kids would need me. And it's like, yeah. oh, they heard your phone voice. Yeah. Oh. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. When mom's got her phone voice on, you know, uh, that's the time to interrupt her. And so mm -hmm. I, it just when I was reading about work voice, it made me think of that. And also, I mean, I do know I do know the doctoral work voice like I've heard. I've heard this voice from doctors, yeah. not necessarily from Dr. Lawrence, but from, from doctors. And, and I think that the intention might be to come across as someone who has authority, um, but it can certainly turn patronizing very quickly. And, and that's, that, that's what you're describing here. You know, you say it's very patronizing and even has a little chuckle in it. So yeah, I can kind of hear it. I want to ask you another question and it, this may, this may not be the right time to ask the question. We may want to, you may tell me that we need to wait and talk about this later, but as you look back on this time uh, to when you were 14 and you were diagnosed with depression, do you think that was typical 14 year old middle school, middle school to high school kind of um, development and finding yourself? Or do you think that it was related to things that had happened to you that at that time you weren't able to remember? I don't think it was typical. Um, I didn't see my friends going through the same mm -hmm. struggles. I think like there's levels of, you know, moodiness and I don't want to do stuff and just puberty mm -hmm. that I think we all go through. Um, but there was, there was just like, a, I, I can't even describe it of what it was that was like going on with me. And it wasn't like at 14, I was depressed. Like, right. It, it, it that's when they that's when they noticed enough to give me a test so that means it had been going on for 
you know, a very long time for them to like finally be like, okay, we're going to test her for this. So I think, I think what I was experiencing was probably deeper than it wasn't just puberty. It was probably atypical for, for someone of that age. Yeah. Okay. And probably the test knows how to, the, the test accounts for that in some way, I would think. Yes. And the test is based on age groups as well. So that's why like I can't remember how he described it, but it was like major depression was mm. like the description. Like it, it was like high, high levels of everything. Mm. Spe- and that was specifically for my age group. So I guess in the results, yes, it was not typical for my age group to be that, um, that depressed. I joined the Girl Scouts when I was eight years old and loved it. The smell of a roaring fire, s'mores, and dew in the morning always remind me of Scouts. But freshman year of high school, That fun was about to end. My troop had a falling out and just two of us were left. I couldn't say goodbye to the campouts, service projects, and being silly with my friends yet. So I did some recruiting. I planned a sleepover and invited some of my new high school friends. I didn't tell them what I was planning. I just invited them over for some fun. Ultimately, out of the 10 girls I invited to my recruitment sleepover, five of them wanted to join the troop. So the troop was back, seven girls strong. Even though we were in high school, we still had to sell Girl Scout cookies. We found it hard to sell them in front of the grocery store since we weren't cute six-year-olds anymore. No matter, we decided to sell cookies at our high school. I don't know many people who would be comfortable selling Girl Scout cookies at their high school, but my friends were. We sold so many cookies. After just a few days, we didn't have to sell much more. That's what I loved about my ladies. They were not embarrassed to do out-of-the-box things and have fun with it. So Girl Scouts was really what saved me through high school. Like that was something where um, I had, you know, we had a set meeting on Mondays and we would get together and we would just be silly and have fun and earn badges. And that was something that I could really put my energy into. And so for me, like Girl Scouts was everything. I loved it. Um, I learned so many skills from Girl Scouts that I still use today. And in Girl Scouts, they have something called a Gold Award, which is the equivalent to Eagle Award, but no one's heard of it. Uh, and that was something that I worked towards pretty much my whole high school time was my Gold Award. And I ultimately earned it. And um, that was something that in like every job I've had since since graduating high school, it's on my resume. And people ask about it because they've never heard of it. And I get to talk about it. And I've always gotten the jobs. So it's, uh, it was definitely something that I learned a ton from and I still think of it fondly and I'm still friends with the Girl Scouts. Uh, I just, just texting with one of them today and, um, actually we've had two of them on the podcast, two of the Girl Scouts. We had Emily and Megan and they were both in my Girl Scout troop. I think it's so great that in, that it was something you wanted. And instead of just going, okay, well, it didn't work out. The troops split up. There's only two of us that you like made the effort to recruit and to kind of build a new troop at an age where most people wouldn't think to do that. You know? Yeah. I really like to kind of break the, the norms for stuff. Uh, shocking. But <laughs> you know, one of the things that I would, I kept hearing like through my Girl Scout life, like as a child and, you know, growing up, was, you know, once you're in high school, you probably won't be a Girl Scout anymore. Like, you'll get new interest. And and I heard that, and I was like, no, that's not going to happen to me. And, of course, it did happen to, you know, there was only two of us left. And I was like, no, we're going to still have fun. We're still going to be a Girl Scout. Like, I'm not embarrassed by this. And the other 
girl in the troop. She wasn't embarrassed by it. And uh, and so I was like, well, let's recruit our friends and we're going to tell them how cool Girl Scouts is. And I still like it still does shock me that five yeah. five girls were like, yeah, let's be Girl Scouts. And we're a freshman in high school. And they're like, yeah, Girl Scouts sounds fun. Like, yeah. it does seem odd. But that's what I loved was like, I love to do those kind of things where it's like, this is something that people usually get out of or aren't into or don't think it's cool anymore. I'm like, I'm going to make this cool. And so I did. And you actually talked about getting your gold award back in episode 76. We have an episode called Girl Scouts is More Than Cookies. Yes. And you talked about it some. And the gold award gold award uh, was, that was like you're saying, it was new to me. Yeah. You know, I get, I know about Eagle Scout projects yeah. and um, I'm hoping that an Eagle Scout wannabe is going to pick my church for his project. But um, so I know about Eagle Scout projects, but the gold award was new to me. So that's cool. During my sophomore year of high school, 9-11 happened. As bad and unimaginable as it was, my brother had joined the Air Force just weeks before and was in basic training. He called us the night of the attacks, just long enough to say that he was okay. I felt a pain and sadness I had never experienced before. I couldn't wrap my head around so many innocent lives being lost. I still can't imagine what it must have been like on the streets of New York that day and what people can never unsee. And in my head, behind all that sadness and destruction, was my brother, alone, away from the family, on a military base with little training under his belt. Questions kept swirling in my 15-year-old head. Are the bad guys going to target military bases? Are they coming for my brother next? Does this mean war? Does this mean my brother is going to war? Shortly after he finished basic training, he was sent to Afghanistan. That was a hard time emotionally for me. The emotions I had shut down so well came roaring back, stronger than ever. To cope, I journaled a lot and wrote letters to my brother. We wrote things to each other that we would never say in person. I had less fear sharing my deep feelings with him. I guess the fear that I might not ever get to say those things to him was greater than the fear of expressing them. Most of my high school career was made up of making videos. I took a TV production class my sophomore year and knew production was for me. Making videos was a way to share my feelings with the world in a way I couldn't do with words. With video editing, I could craft a story out of nothing. Early on, my parents saw this passion in me and invested in a professional video camera and iMac computer. They joke that I never needed braces, so my video equipment was paid for with the money they had set aside for that. I spent hours behind my camera and editing on my Mac. I never had a computer before that I enjoyed using. Computers were always just tools that I had to use for school, but not my Mac. I fell in love with the process of video editing, capturing files, moving each frame, creating a story, and exporting it for others to see. I didn't feel depressed when I was working on productions. I felt whole. I felt complete. I didn't know what, and I didn't know how, but I knew my life's work would involve production in some way. Video production became my passion. As high school came to a close, I would see depression in another person for the first time. My Girl Scout friend Megan, who just happens to share the same name as one of my college roommates. My Volvo was packed with four suitcases for spring break. A safety whistle dangled around each of my friend's neck and my own, 
gifts from my mom that we planned to ditch when we arrived in Orlando. This was the first spring break with no parents, hanging out with my Girl Scout friends for five days at Disney. But after we made the four-hour drive and spent a day in the parks, I saw Megan change. She became a shell of her former self. She didn't want to talk to us. She didn't want to be around us. And she didn't want anything to do with the fun we were having. I don't mean that she didn't want to be our friend anymore. It was different. It was not childish and it was not catty. It was the darkness of depression, although I didn't know it at the time. We all stayed in a hotel room together and one night, Megan wanted to go to bed at nine. The rest of us were not ready for bed, but we let her sleep and the three of us gathered in the hallway, sat on the floor and played cards. I was upset with Megan for not enjoying our trip, but as the weeks went on, Long after we came back home, I continued to see a deep hurt in her. It scared me, probably because deep down, I knew I was depressed too. I just hid mine better. I tried to convince Megan to get some therapy, but she wasn't open to it. We stayed friends through the beginning of community college, but then she dropped out. I didn't see her much after that. When I started cutting and feeling the effects of deep depression, Megan's face would come to my mind. I wanted to reach out to her. I wanted to tell her that I understood it now. I wanted to talk to her for help, but I was too lost for that. Again, I think um, I think it's pretty epic that for our senior spring break, we went to Disney World. Um, I also think that is uh, that's one of the. I don't think that's what many kids did their senior year spring break. So that was another thing where I just thought, you know what. Let's do this. This is something that most people don't do and would think is silly. And by gosh, it is silly. Let's do it. And we still talk about that trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Megan was our guest on episode 86. Yes. I just looked back at the list. And and I remember her talking about the trip. And yes. I remember you guys joking about the whistles yeah. that your mom had given you. <laughs> these safety whistles as if you would wear them and yeah. as if they would help. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this was an epic adventure that really marked your senior year in a big way. Yes, it really did. And uh, I look back at it, Megan and I talk about it a lot because she feels like she ruined the trip. And, um, you know, she looks back at it now having dealt with her stuff and was just like, I wish I could have been this. Like, no, this is exactly how it needed to go. Like, I don't look back at it upset with, I mean, I did like shortly, but um, I look at it really fondly. And also Emily was sick on that trip. Mm. <laughs> I didn't talk about that, but she was like, she had like some kind of cold or something. Like we were just a hot mess of a group, but it was like the greatest. And Meredith had her birthday, her 18th birthday there. And we, um, kept a journal of, um, every day and, um, like Meredith wrote out like every day. And we still, I have copies of it that I have given to them and they look back at it. And it's just like, as much as it was like, so like emotional and like tough with you know Megan struggling with depression at the time it was you know it was great so the other thing that you bring out in this chapter is that high school is where you discovered your passion and your love and your skills related to production and that has been pretty pivotal in your life that was another thing that was like saved me through high school was Girl Scouts and TV production uh, and I put the incorporated those a lot together my Girl Scout Gold Award was to make a documentary about a mission project that my church would do, and um, they were able to get more funding and more churches involved through that video or through that documentary. So um, they definitely were intertwined, those two things. 
And yeah, so back then, obviously, there was nothing called a YouTube. Uh, we did, we had, I mean, I still have uh, VHS tapes with some of my videos on them. Um, I have actually, well, I have actually converted everything to digital because I'm pretty good at archiving. Um, but yeah, there were some videos where like they were on a VHS tape. That's when you feel old is when you realize the, <laughs> the progression of media you've gone through. When I realized I started with a CD, a DVD, a VHS tape, never put anything out of cassette tape because it's nothing, just audio. But, um, but I do still use my video production skills because I have two YouTube channels now. Still making videos. I actually just taught my nine-year-old nephew to edit, and that was very cool. Did He edited two videos, and they're really good. I was very proud of him. He learned how to make cuts, how to reverse a clip. He loved doing that. Mm. He might have used that too much, so I had to give him some pointers on that. But it was pretty cool. And uh, transitions and titles, so um, I, was, I was a proud aunt. So that was chapter two. I don't know if I said it, but it was called High School. That was the name of the chapter. And that is from my book, Discovering My Scars. And like I said, we will continue to go through the book in future episodes. And if you are looking to read the whole book without us talking in between, <laughs> um, you can find a uh, paperback, audiobook, or ebook. And those are all online. You can find them wherever books are sold. Uh, obviously, Amazon has them all, Apple Books. My website, smkauthor.com, all the places. All right, Beth, anything going on in your life? Well, you shared a few weeks ago that um, that your car had been hit in a parking lot. Did you yep. get it fixed? It was hit when I was at a stop sign and oh. the truck in front of me backed up into me. So they're was bad. Was he in a parking lot? People don't normally no. back up at stop signs. Yeah. He was too far forward in on Capitol Circle. Oh. And then he realized and he started backing up into me. Oh, yeah. I totally misunderstood how that happened. Yeah. So your car was damaged. Yes. But <laughs> did you get it fixed? Yes, it's fixed. It's completely fixed. And um, I didn't have to pay a cent because his insurance covered it all, which was awesome. Um, yeah, I'm really happy with it. They had to actually replace the whole hood of the car because they tried to fix the damage because it was only like a little bit and they were going to try to push out the metal, but they weren't able to. And, um, and the co color is perfect. I don't know how they, well, he explained to me how they do the color matching. Um, and sometimes they can't even do it. So they have to redo the whole car. Um, but it is matched very well. And then, um, yeah, so I'm really happy with it. Cause, um, uh, you know, my, husband was in a car accident uh oh yeah is like that fixed? six weeks ago is six it fixed? Or seven weeks ago no he was hit he someone was hit. hit him yeah yeah he was he was driving out of our neighborhood and someone was coming into the neighborhood and hadn't secured their trailer mm -hmm. and the back door of the trailer um it was like an enclosed trailer so it swung open and anyway took out the front driver's side of his of his jeep and um hopefully he'll get it back soon okay um but um, our, our last guest on the podcast was my daughter, Hannah, who yeah. I also talked about in this episode and she <laughs> was leaving our driveway recently and, um, hit the brick culvert at the end of the driveway. Oh, what? Yeah. Like with the front or back of her car? With the whole passenger side of her car. What? Yes. How? 
Has she not driven out of your driveway before? I mean, never happened. It's like it's like one of those things that she's done so much that I think she just wasn't paying attention. Even once we get the other car back, we're going to be having this other car at the body shop. Do you have a picture? I'm kind of over it. Uh, let's see. So like it smushed the whole passenger side? It didn't smush it. It like scratched, scratched it very it. deeply. Okay. You know, she just bought herself new tires. She yeah. took a chunk out of the out of the tire. So is she going to pay for the repair? Or are you so, going through insurance? Yeah. Well, whatever ends up happening, it will be at her expense. Yeah. Yeah. And she is she's fully aware of that. For sure her totally. faults. There's a- yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. At the end of each episode, we end with questions for reflection. These are questions based on today's show that Beth will read and leave a little pause between for you to answer to yourself. Or you can find a PDF on our Buy Me a Coffee page. Number one, how much of your childhood do you remember? Number two, in high school, Steph discovered a passion for production. What are you passionate about? When did you realize it? Number three, what was 9-11 like for you? And number four, think about a time you saw something in another that gave you insight about yourself. Who was it? What was it like for you? Discovering Our Scars podcast is produced by Stephanie Kostopoulos and Beth Demi. Thanks for joining us.